0: This is a Library Channel program from the UC San Diego Library. Visit us at www.uctv.tv slash
1: library dash channel for interviews, author talks, and other programs that will inspire you to read, write, think, and dream. I'm Brian Schotlander, the university librarian here at UC San Diego, and I'm very pleased to welcome you all to Geisel Library for what I know will be a very fascinating talk. I'm especially pleased to be introducing this afternoon's speaker, Dr. Joel Dimsdale, because in addition to being the author of this riveting new book, you see my copy's already bro darted, um, which Yale University Press has just issued, um, Joel is also a friend and a longtime contributor to the campus and the library. Um, I have had the benefit of and have very much appreciated Joel's counsel over the years, um, both in the context of the Academic Senate, uh, which he and I have both served in, um, and in the context of my own University Librarian's Advisory Board. In fact, Joel is joined by a few of his Advisory Board peeps who are sitting in that second row right there. Um, and I'm very grateful to him and, and to his wife, Nancy, for their friendship and support. Um, Joel and Nancy have both been stalwart supporters of the library. They have donated funds to name group study rooms um, in both of our primary library buildings, Geisel and the Biomedical Library Building. Um, one to in the memory of Joel's mother, Phyllis Green Dimsdale, and a second in the memory of Joel's father, Dr. Lewis Dimsdale, and his uncle William Dimsdale. Prior to joining UC San Diego in 1985, Joel served on the faculty of the Harvard Medical School. He also served as president of the Academy of Behavioral Medicine Research, president of the American Psychosomatic Society, and president of the Society of Behavioral Medicine. Uh, You'll see he likes presidents. He has served as a consultant to the President's Commission on Mental Health and to the Institute of Medicine and was a longtime reviewer for the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda. He himself is the author of more than 500 publications and has served as the editor of four books. A former chair of the UC San Diego Academic Senate, Joel um, has been an emeritus professor here at UC San Diego since 2010. And he specializes in consultation psychiatry, focusing on nervous system physiology and the cultural and psychosomatic factors that are involved in illness and the quality of life. Those of you who know Joel know that calling him retired doesn't make a whole lot of sense, except perhaps in the sense of the recent book by Ken Blanchard and Morton Chavitz titled Refire, Don't Retire. <laughs> And that Joel has certainly done many times over. The psychological profile of the Nazi leadership is not a new subject for Joel. Some of you may have gotten a glimpse of what was to come in his new book when, in 2013, he was one of the featured speakers at our Holocaust Living History workshop, which we co-sponsor with Jewish Studies here at UC San Diego. At that time, he delivered an engrossing, if chilling, talk about the yeoman efforts made by the American military's top psychiatrists and psychologists to understand and illuminate the mental states of the Nazi war criminals awaiting trial in Nuremberg. In this new book, titled The Anatomy of Malice, he takes a look at some of the Nazi regime's most notorious leaders, individuals who, were either author, who either authorized or themselves committed some of the most heinous crimes against humanity. He asks a fundamental question. They had to be mentally ill or pathological murderers, didn't they? And in the new book, uses the modern tools now available to the psychiatrist to do a much deeper dive into this question, filling in many pieces of the disturbing puzzle. Um, After our talk, there will be an opportunity for questions and answers, and followed by a reception in the foyer just outside this room. Uh, And very importantly, the university bookstore uh, has agreed to sell copies of Joel's book Um, And Joel has agreed to sign those, for those of you lucky enough to get a copy. Um, I I encourage you to avail yourself of that opportunity. As you can see from my bookmark, I'm halfway through it myself, because it is a riveting read. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Joel Demstead.
0: Thank you so much, Brian. You know, my work on this project would not have been possible without this library, the archives, the rich collection of this library, and the other libraries in the University of California system. Uh, They are jewels that really are the heart of the university. This afternoon, I thought I would give an overview of, of what my book is about. You know, sometimes research straddles many areas of medicine, history, and our ideas of the nature of the world. My book focuses on such questions in the context of the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg. Certainly the Nazi hierarchy constituted the essence of malice. But what is malice? What drove them? That's a question that preoccupies us today when we read the news today as well as it did in 1945. But in Nuremberg, there was something very unusual going on. And there was a set of circumstances that led to two brilliant peoples Observations and in depth studies of the Nazi leaders. My book discusses what these investigators found out about the war criminals, what it did to them, and why their findings have been locked away for so many years. By the end of the war, millions of non-combatants had been murdered, and Europe was in ruins. The world was determined to understand the malice of the Nazi leaders. How could war criminals do what they did? Were they suffering from a psychiatric disorder? Were they criminally insane, psychopaths, sadists, delusional? The dots on this map are not towns, but rather locations of some of the 40,000 camps in greater Germany alone. This killing was not simple bloodlust, but was planful predation. Thus, my book focuses on the leaders of Nazi Germany, those who were least least able to claim that they were cogs in the machinery of state. There would certainly be retribution for these crimes, and for a time, the Allies couldn't agree about the process. Thus, initially, most of the war criminals were detained at the Palace Hotel, a luxury spa in Mondorf, Luxembourg, That was codenamed Ashcan. Security was so tight that, quote, in order to gain access, you needed a pass from God and someone to vouch for his signature. (laughs) The war criminals posed for photos on the veranda of the hotel and were nicknamed the Class of 1945. John Kenneth Galbraith, who happened to be there at the time, he sensed the drama looming behind these walls. He writes, "'Suppose someone had written a play "'and put all these characters on the stage "'when the curtain went up. "'The playbill would have read "'A Jail in Luxembourg in June 1945.'" While the Nazis were on the veranda at Ashcan, the Allies debated if, how, and where a war crimes trial might be held. They settled on Nuremberg. When the war ended, Nuremberg was virtually destroyed, but paradoxically, the courthouse and the prison survived. The prisoners were transferred from Ashcan to the Nuremberg Prison. Many people have asked me how I got into this. Um, I have spent most of my life in that center area, seeing patients, conducting research, and I thought I would read a, a brief passage in the book that explained I got into this. Uh, That's my office at Massachusetts General Hospital. I was in my office in the attic of a little isolated building on the Massachusetts General Hospital grounds. There was a loud knock on my door, and I was startled because I wasn't expecting anyone, and the building had few visitors. A man walked in, saying without any preamble, I'm the executioner, and I have come for you. He sat down on my sofa, gestured to a gun case, and I said a quiet little prayer to myself. When he opened the case, I saw it was not a gun case after all, but rather a document case with scrolls of World War II documents. I was the Nuremberg executioner, and these documents prove that I am who I say I am. He went on to tell me that he was proud of his job and that while still being professional about it, he enjoyed hanging the criminals. They were scum, Dimsdale, and you need to be studying them, not the survivors. This was a dark topic, and I didn't rush into this at all uh, until I retired. Uh, And how could I interview... The dead, in any event. And that's when I discovered the power of archives. Studying things that are frequently uncatalogued, uh, the ultimate in antique roadshow, uh, in strange places, logical places like the Library of Congress, the National Archives, not so logical places. University of California in Santa Cruz, University of Akron all kinds of places that have documents highly relevant to this topic. Well, I was in the Library of Congress uh, when this kind of fell out of a folder, uh, a telegram to Justice uh, Jackson, and uh, it was from uh, Harvard criminologist Sheldon Gluck, Gluck suggested that a thorough pre-trial examination be made of the war criminals by psychiatrists, by psychologists, and anthropologists knowledgeable about the Rorschach. There were many similar letters in the files. Oddly enough, psychiatry and psychology were deeply involved in the trial, and the letters contained two unusual recommendations. Give the criminals Rorschachs and give us their brains after they were executed. Well, the assumption is that the defendants were depraved monsters, psychopaths, but what does that mean? How do you prove it? In fact, they were a very heterogeneous group of high-ranking defendants. Hess had been detained In a British psychiatric hospital since 1941, and he was intermittently delusional and frequently claimed amnesia. Stryker's pornographic racist theories were so objectionable that the Nazis had put him under house arrest for the last few years of the war. In fact, many of the defendants loathed each other. Psychiatrist Douglas Kelly and psychologist Gustav Gilbert were minor functionaries at Nuremberg, but are our major protagonists concerning the examination of the Nazi leaders. They had multiple roles. They were to determine fitness for trial, maintain the prisoner's morale, advise the prosecution, but they had their personal agendas as well. They had... The Extraordinary Goal of Investigating the Psychopathology of the Nazi Leaders. My book focuses on their interactions with four leaders, Lay, Goring, Stryker, and Hess. Probably Robert Ley is the least familiar to you. Robert Ley... Uh, suppressed labor unions, authorized numerous war crimes. He had a history of multiple head injuries and episodes of unconsciousness. He was a plane crash survivor that left him with a persistent aphasia. He was also an alcoholic. Psychiatrist Kelly evaluated Lay in October 1945 and wrote normal psychomotor reactions and normal attitudes and behavior The mood is normal, but affect is extremely labile. The Rorschach reveals emotional instability. He is one of the most potentially suicidal prisoners due to his extreme instability, due to his old head injury. Lay is competent. Lay hanged himself the next day. Kelly writes sardonically a year later, since Lay kindly made his brain available for post-mortem examinations, we were presented with a rare chance to verify our clinical and Rorschach findings. There was a great deal of popular interest in the ideas of finding the lesion in the war criminal's brain. And the race was on to prove that these were evil, brain-damaged, Frankenstein-like monsters. The Sarasota Herald Tribune quoted the Surgeon General of the Army as saying, these changes were sufficient to account for the unusual behavior of Lay. Not to be outdone, Life Magazine ran a story showing Major Webb Haymaker of the U.S. um, Army Institute of Pathology dissecting Lay's brain. Haymaker reported long-standing g- degenerative processes in the frontal lobes, consistent with chronic encephalopathy. Hermann Göring arrived in prison with 49 suitcases and loads of jewelry, notably large rings, and with all of Germany's paracodine supply. He was charming, confident, cynical and dominant over all of the other prisoners. He regarded the trial as victor's justice. There is an eerie, uncomfortable sense of contemporary familiarity about what much of what Goering said. The people can always be brought to the bidding of the leaders, that's easy. All you have to do is tell them that they're being attacked and denounce the pacifists for lack of patriotism and exposing the country to danger. It works the same in any country. Goering committed suicide with cyanide one hour before he was supposed to be executed. And the question to this day is where he got the cyanide. And that question will re-echo uh, in a couple minutes. Julia Stryker was editor of uh, the pornographic anti-Semitic uh, newspaper Stürmer*. He was a kind of a Hannibal Lecter with a typewriter. Uh, he, he urged his followers to beat up his political po- opponents and accused his uh, opponents in the Nazi party of sexual inadequacy. Whereas Goering could be affable if he chose to be, no one found Streicher affable. Indeed, as I mentioned, he was so loathsome that the Nazis themselves had put him under house arrest. Rudolf Hess was one of the other major defendants. He complained of amnesia and numerous somatic ailments. He was a suspicious man who saved samples of his, pro- of his food to prove that he was being poisoned. Seen here is a photo that I took in a uh, dining room in Silver Spring, Maryland. Uh, This is one of his envelopes, one of Rudolf Hess's envelopes, which had been sealed with red sealing wax that he'd stuffed samples of his um, wafers in to prove that he was being poisoned. Uh, uh, Matter of fact, when he arrived to Nuremberg, he insisted that the Swiss assay the crackers uh, to make sure that they what the poison was, and the Swiss reported that they were crackers. Now, there's a University of California connection with all of this. There are many which I don't have time to go into. Uh, psychiatrist Douglas Kelly was one of Terman's California geniuses, the top half percent of, of IQs of California kids. He was a Columbia graduate, an expert in forensic psychiatry, personality and the Rorschach. He was ebullient, a, a great storyteller and in his spare time a professional magician. Kelly's relationship with Goering was intense and close. Goering was one of the easiest to get along with. Each day when I came to his cell, he would jump up from his chair, greet me with a broad smile, an outstretched hand, escort me to his cot, pat the middle of the cot with his great paw, and say, good morning, doctor, I'm so glad you've come to see me please sit down, doctor, sit here. Then he would ease his own great body down beside me, ready to answer my questions. Goering regarded Kelly as a great fixer. Kelly agreed to intercede with Wild Bill Donovan, uh, the soon-to-be director of the CIA, on Goering's behalf, and to personally deliver letters to Goering's wife. Goering offers Kelly one of his enormous rings in thanks, but Kelly refuses, and then Goering responded, then I'll give you something even better and much more valuable, a signed photograph of me. <laughs> By enormous good fortune, Kelly was a Rorschach expert, but alas, he spoke no German. Gustav Gilbert, on the far right, was an American psychologist from an Austrian Jewish family. In contrast to Kelly, Gilbert was a dour, humorless man who was a stickler for precise testing. In Gilbert's fine writings, one senses more feelings of hatred for the Nazis. Kelly was just trying to get them to trial and was intellectually curious about them, regarding them as specimens. Gilbert was also a Columbia graduate with particular expertise in social psychology. His German was impeccable, but he had very little expertise with the Rorschachs. And thus, this became a collaboration from Um, hell. They needed each other. They didn't like each other. They had very different personalities and as I will uh, uh, demonstrate, they saw things fundamentally differently. Kelly designed much of the testing protocol. In fact, it was never used in evidence uh, at Nuremberg. The criminals actually enjoyed it. They enjoyed the testing. Uh, They compared their IQ scores, bragging as if they were kids comparing their SAT uh, uh, scores. After the war... uh, Kelly uh, assumed prominent editorial positions and became a professor at Berkeley. And his famous uh, conclusion is that Nazism is a sociocultural disease. I had at Nuremberg the purest known Nazi virus cultures, 22 flasks, as it were, to study. Well, let's practice. This is one of the 10 Rorschach cards. What do you see here? And what makes you say that? Take a moment and reflect. Now, do remember that there are many cards and typically multiple responses for each card to keep track of. So this is just a minuscule sampling. Uh, Hans Frisch of the propaganda ministry says, Two dancing bears, very clear, or gnomes or dwarfs, makes a revolting impression. Not at all friendly. The bloody color makes me feel uncomfortable. Robert Lay, uh, who I mentioned before, says, A butterfly. There are colors here, black and red and white. A stork, or a goose, would be better. It looks like it was tipped over with its legs pulled in. No, it's the jaws of the Butterfly. Hermann Goering laughs and says, these are two dancing figures, very clear, a shoulder here and a face there. He cuts off the bottom part of the picture with his hand and says, the top red is the hat and, and head and hat, the face is partly white. Rudolf has, says, parts of an insect with blood spots, mask of an island savage, the opening is for the mouth, It is devilish. That is why the eyes and beard are red. So uh, Kelly and Gilbert, at first blush, had similar conclusions. They both uh, described them as, the criminals, as sane and aggressive. But their final conclusions were markedly different. Uh, Kelly said they're basically ordinary people Influenced by mendacity and bureaucracy, they are creatures of their environment. Gilbert says, they are narcissistic psychopaths. But there were peculiar things going on um, at Nuremberg and afterwards. When Kelly left, uh, Goering wept um, and asked Kelly to adopt his daughter, Etta, uh, if Goering's wife uh, died. Kelly and Gilbert were distrustful. They raced to publish their data, but they never reported um, the Rorschachs, and no one would touch it. Molly Harrower was the world's foremost Rorschach expert, and she was probably the only She was a friend to both Kelly and Gilbert. Um, She tried to talk them into collaborating. She tried to get an international conference together to discuss the Rorschachs, but everyone declined. Molly thought they dropped out because the findings were so unexpected and also that people didn't want to get in the midst of an ugly dispute between uh, Gilbert and Kelly. Um... Molly was the editor of a series uh, of books and she, uh, uh, Gilbert submitted uh, an invited paper uh, on the Rorschachs. Uh, he was impatient uh, with uh, with the process of editorial review and submitted the same manuscript to um, another publisher without telling Harrower and uh, by luck of the draw, the new publisher selected Harrower as the blind reviewer, independent reviewer uh, of Gilbert. Uh, finally, 30 years later, 1975, Gilbert's Rorschachs were released by Miali and Seltzer. Now, before I go into that, I need to double back and, and bring you up to date with uh, Douglas Kelly. He killed himself on New Year's Day in 1958 in front of his entire family. He was cooking a New Year's Day dinner, got in a quarrel with his wife, went to his study, came out and said, I think I've killed myself. And he died a minute later. His son explained in an interview, I think maybe he knew he was on a runaway train. I think he knew what was inside, but he didn't know how to make it go away. Regardless of Kelly's reasons, everyone noted noted the method, cyanide, and speculations were rife about where the cyanide came from. Miali and Seltzer published Gilbert's Rorschach's and described them with great conviction as distinctly savage and devilish. But Molly Harrower had her doubts. How could they be homogeneous? These guys were very different from each other. Furthermore, if you were looking for sadism, would you expect that in government ministers? Or would you be looking at that in the people who were hands-on killers? Molly said... We've got to have blinded testing to solve this. She was world-renowned and had access to all kinds of Rorschach records, hundreds, thousands of records. And so she came upon a design where she would um, give Rorschach experts three samples of Rorschachs, um, uh, and they were scrambled so you couldn't tell whose Rorschach was whom. But there were the war criminals Rorschachs, Unitarian ministers, and psychiatric patients. The experts could not identify a common feature to the Nuremberg war criminals. So what are the traditions for understanding malice? When all is said and done, what is malice and how do we understand it? There are multiple intellectual strands, and Gilbert and Kelly represent those two strands. Gilbert believed that there was something categorically different about the defendants, that they were monstrous psychopaths. Psychopaths are typically described as violent, manipulative, impulsive, callous, lacking empathy or remorse. And, In contemporary uh, psychiatric terminology, psychopaths are an extreme variant of antisocial personality disorder. Curiously, there's always been a suspicion that there is something wrong with the brains of the psychopaths. They don't learn well from life's experience. They don't respond to stressors the same way we do. Um, uh, And some of them do, in fact, have abnormal uh, brain structures. Remember uh, Robert Lay. So if Gilbert believed in psychopathology, Kelly was influenced by a social psychological perspective that we're all capable of such evil under certain circumstances. And there's a familiarity and the syntonic quality of, of Kelly's work with the, the classic studies uh, of, uh, of Hannah Arendt. The sad truth is that most evil is done by people who never made up their minds to be either good or evil. The Yale Shock experiment where uh, Milgram demonstrated people would obey. The bystander apathy studies shaped by Kitty Genovese that there's a diffusion of responsibility in group settings, and the the Stanford uh, prison experience uh, experiment, where uh, healthy kids would adopt sadistic behaviors when placed in certain roles. So, in 2016, what's the burden of proof? Um, Would this be a persuasive study? The sample size is small. The, um, they were heterogeneous people. They were tested in prison while facing likely execution. Were these the right Nazis to test? Were there technical aspects um, about the study itself that raised question? Let me... Uh, Conclude the afterward uh, in my book. So, I was on another improbable quest for answers. What is it about this topic that leads to archives in such improbable places? This time, I was back home in California, walking through the redwood trees that stand like sentinels around the library. At UC Santa Cruz. A, sub- a subdued light filtered through the moist early morning air, and the groves were filled with the scent of redwoods and the caw from the Stellar's Jays. I had come to the library in the hopes of learning more about Malice. For unclear reasons, its archives held some of Douglas Kelly's papers. The files were useful in revealing more information about Kelly, magician, astronomer, television producer, raconteur, but included relatively few new documents pertinent to Nuremberg. I was, of course, disappointed, but then I started to reflect, would any archives have answered my questions about malice? The Bible says pointedly, the dark places of the earth Are full of the habitations of cruelty. The poet Neruda concludes more hopefully the earth is a bed blooming for love, soiled in blood. Kelly found some darkness in every person. Gilbert found a unique darkness in some. They were both right. Thank you. I'll be happy to try to answer uh, any questions. John. In today, would a Rorschach test be used or do we have any improvement on the technique of that time? Uh, Wonderful, wonderful question. I I doubt that a Rorschach test would be used today. The Rorschach test, Anybody in the audience use, the, any psychologists, psychiatrists use the Rorschach today? Um, uh, the Rorschach is, I'm sure some of my colleagues would, would find this highly objectionable on my part, but, but the Rorschach is used much less so. It's a powerful, very sensitive test, uh, but it's not so reliable. That's the whole point of Molly Harrower's uh, uh, studies, the Rorschach is like, I'm an amateur photographer, it's like taking a photo with a telephoto lens, but you don't have a tripod. So it's a little, it's a little uh, shaky. So what would we do today? This is the extraordinarily interesting question. We might disparage some of these studies, the small sample size, Twenty-one people tested the Rorschach, but keep in mind, there has never been something like this since Nuremberg. Even though there are war crimes trials today, there's no Kelly, there's no Gilbert. If there is a psychiatrist or psychologist there in The Hague, the only thing they're doing is determining ability to stand trial. So these efforts at trying to really dive down. Um, this is the only place where it's been done. How did people dive down? They spent 80 hours with each, with each person interviewing them. They gave them all of these psychological tests. So what would we do today? Um, I think the one area... Maybe there are two areas that that we would do differently. Uh, It's tough to make psychiatric diagnoses. It's a very complex area. We're relying on history, patient examination. One of the things that has changed in my lifetime is that we're much more careful to describe exactly what we're seeing. There's a lot of discussion about psychiatry's DSM that comes out every 10 or 20 years to update how we make diagnoses. There was no DSM back in 1945. There was no shared consensus about what schizophrenia meant, what even depression meant. So number one, I think we'd be more precise in describing uh, what we're seeing in the patients in front of us. Number two, I alluded to the neural pathology. Uh, and I think it's clear that would be done. Uh, there's a whole branch of what's called neuro law right now that, that says, okay, it's, this person's not a bad person. He has a bad brain. And so should that be taken into consideration as one decides a, uh, a verdict? I think with, with neural radiology, we can do a lot there. But the fact is, I rather doubt it's going to change the sentencing too much. There was a study in science a couple years ago. Some of you may remember it. Um, judges get together, in Vegas, um, the same same way everybody else does, uh, for judges' conventions. And they uh, presented um, a vignette to judges. And the vignette was the same. Some guy robs a liquor store and shoots the clerk. And the vignette's the same except for one sentence. And the the sentence describes a psychiatric testimony. So in, in one of the cases, the psychiatric expert is going through all these things in neural law. And uh, the question is, does that influence sentencing? And it did by, the, by an average of about one month. So it, 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 we do pay attention to it. I think, the, um, I think in terms of basic research, the whole neuroimaging, some of the complexity of neuroendocrine studies, these things are going to be of interest to the field. The question is, will we have access to war criminals or will we just have access to people in Atascadero or, or some of the, the, the psychiatric hospitals or prisons locally? Are they the same? <coughs> are, is Hermann Goering distinctly different um, I think the, the, our institutions are filled more with the impulsive, bloodlust killers than they are filled with the predators who could plan so carefully and orchestrate. I'm sorry, that was a long-winded uh, answer. but
1: I was thinking of uh, Bernie Madoff, and I hope we haven't forgotten what terrible crimes he did financially against so many people in the country and this was a man who if i'm not mistaken was the president of the nasdaq so he was certainly somebody who was well known in a position of power in a seemingly respectable position and yet uh, committed such terrible financial crimes do you know if someone like him has ever been analyzed psychologically and if uh, anything has been published about that
0: i um I don't know. I seem to recall there was some psychiatric testimony in his trial. I may be mistaken. Um, The the issue is that, um, you know, psychopaths come in two flavors in cultural parlance. Um, There's a a psycho uh, with a shower scene. And then there's the Sopranos. And certainly in the four war criminals uh, whose records I've really tried to disentangle, you see both. Uh, You see very different um, uh, uh, behaviors. Uh, And I think that's probably the the take-home lesson that malice is on a spectrum that it is multidimensional, and we delude ourselves if we think that we can uh, hone in on one flavor of malice.
1: Members of ISIS, I don't think that they think that they're psychopaths. They have a common enemy. And I'm just wondering, not in, in any way trying to justify, but might these... Um, animals for lack of a better word coming to my mind think as well that they are basically normal people in every aspect but they think they have a, uh enemy that they have to destroy and destroy in the worst way
0: I think that's on a lot of our minds um, certainly on my mind as I was working on this area Psychiatry is very uneasy uh, diagnosing cultures. We have enough problems diagnosing and helping the patient in our office without looking at cultural beliefs, and there are many cultural beliefs. uh, uh, So I think the... uh, uh, I I would... uh, I would want to look, I'd want to spend a lot of time with them, I'd want to see. And I think there would be a difference between um, some kid who hops on a plane in in Minneapolis uh, out of poor judgment versus a leader in the movement. And what I've been calling for is a, a study of the leaders because I think the leaders certainly are the people who are most planful, intentional and knowledgeable. Uh, yes, Joe. Um, you outlined both the uh, the Rorschach's and the, and the psychiatric side of the investigation and also what I assume was an attempt to try to get some
1: uh, perspective from another side, which would be the objective data of slicing up brain tissue and staining it and looking for whatever. Um,
0: if those respective brains are still available, tucked away in all the little corners of the world, as we get more and more genomics information, might there not be, for tomorrow's study, an interesting study, and how do they match to these whole genome studies and what we're beginning to learn about uh, various traits and characteristics? That's, that's really intriguing. We, there's only one brain that's available. Um, the, uh, the 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 war criminals, uh, those who were hanged, um, were subsequently cremated and the ashes scattered lest they become uh, a site for uh, neo-Nazis to to rally. The only brain that's out there is Robert Lay's. um, And that brain, uh, another University of California connection, that brain traveled from Walter Reed to Langley Porter in San Francisco and um, uh, colleagues in the audience who are doctors know that we all have our reliability issues, and it's certainly not just psychiatry. The pathologists were fighting over what that brain meant, uh, and uh, the brain still exists, I know where it is, uh, but um, the, the lawyers are concerned about giving us access to that, um, uh, And I would have to chase down Robert Lay's descendants to get permission uh, to analyze the brain with the sorts of uh, techniques that you're suggesting. Where did Buren get his cyanide? Ah. the uh, curiously, there are all kinds of people who have have come forward. I gave him the cyanide, no, I gave him the cyanide it's 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 a strange thing um, and I think one of the interesting challenges in history is filtering because it's it's a cacophony it's not a a, a one voice when you read and you study these things and um we don't know uh some people said. Kelly gave Goering the cyanide. Some people say Goering gave Kelly the cyanide. Uh, there is no evidence about this. A lot of people have come forward uh, uh, suggesting one of the guards did it versus another of the guards. Uh, the fact is that cyanide was everywhere at that time. Uh, the last performance of the Berlin Philharmonic uh, before the Russians entered Berlin uh, Cyanide was distributed by the Hitler Youth to people as favors, so that they could uh, they could uh, be spared the humiliation of of uh, and the depredations of the Russians. How and why did the executioner get to you? Um, he got to me. Um, I had done some of my earliest work was uh, a study of concentration camp survivors. And uh, I was very interested in coping behavior. I still am. Uh, how do people endure such extraordinary trauma? And so I had published something, and it, it, it gave me 15 seconds of fame. Um, uh, and he encountered the article. It turned out that he, was a, uh, he lived in Boston. After the war, he'd settled and was a floor finisher in Malden, uh, I think Malden, um, and he came to see me. Uh, So that's how he got to me. Didn't
1: you say that Kelly found the cyanide at Goringham?
0: No. So uh, the question was, did I say that Kelly found Goring cyanide? No, I didn't say that. There was there was. uh, a lot of the people, a lot of the prisoners came into prison with uh, all sorts of uh, of cyanide hidden in their shoes. Um, the, there were razor blades. There were all sorts of things, and they did a very good job of getting the contraband. Uh, can you do this 100%? Uh, and you can see that you can't do this 100 percent. Did they feel any guilt, or they feel, felt proud of what they had done during the Nazi period? Um, so the question was: Did the war criminals feel guilt? Um, they were very, they were very unhappy to be in prison. <laughs> they were very unhappy to be facing trial. A couple of them felt guilt. Robert Lay, for instance, the man who, you know, I mentioned two of them hanged themselves, Robert Lay and Goering. Those suicides were extraordinarily different. Goering's suicide was that of defiance, that he would elude the the Allies' uh, reach. Robert Lay's Suicide was very different. He wrote a suicide note, which I have and it, it 's in the book um, basically um, saying that we have we have sinned uh, I would say um, Robert Lay was in the minority. Uh, the bulk of the the war criminals. At Nuremberg, and this was just the first of many war crimes trials. the bulk of the, the 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 Nazis said well a i didn't know about it b Hitler and himmler and Goebbels forced me to do it uh, and uh, c this is victor's justice so the question was. What do psychopaths feel about doing such things? Well, the defining characteristic of a psychopath is the absence of empathy. To the psychopath, we're all krill. <laughs> Thank you very much.